Good morning. I'm Mike. I'm not one of the pastors on staff here at Lakeview Church. I'm just a regular Joe who gets to bring teaching once in a while. I enjoy that. I enjoy the opportunity to do that. Today we're starting our Advent series. It's called Foretold, the Son of God Revealed. And it's about how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, how he's pictured in the Old Testament, and he's the fulfillment of those pictures. I'd like to start us out with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophecies, for fulfilled prophecies, and for Jesus. Pray that you would help me to communicate clearly here this morning, and that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your scripture and what you have for us here today. Amen. Now, today's sermon is titled, A Light Has Dawned, and it's from Isaiah 9, verse 2, that Jack did such a good job of just reading for us, and it's about Jesus showing up as our Messiah after a long period of darkness. And Isaiah 9 is a messianic prophecy, which means it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And the nation Israel was promised a Messiah very early on. It's something they were expected. I've got expecting. I've got a short uh, one-question quiz for you here this morning to see how sharp you are. It's a multiple choice. Which of these prophecies did Jesus fulfill? These are prophecies surrounding his birth. A is he was born of a virgin that was prophesied 700 years before he was born. Or is the answer B that... He was born in Bethlehem, prophesied by Micah. Or was he C, a descendant of David? That was prophesied more than 900 years before he was born. Think about how long that is. Or is the answer D, all of the above? The answer is D, right? Usually a a good choice in multiple choice questions, all of the above. Those are all prophecies about Jesus. Hundreds of years before he was born, he fulfilled those. Now, I picked... Uh, simple prophecies, ones that he clearly fulfilled. Depending on what list you look at, there's somewhere between 100 and 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, in his ministry, in his death, and his resurrection. The lists vary in length depending on how exact people want the prophecies to be that they include in their list. But I said the Messiah was promised very early on. Pastor Andy will talk about that a little bit next week. I want to share this verse with you from Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord spoke this to Moses, and Moses passed it on to the people. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So they were expecting this. They were expecting this special Messiah. Now I want to look at our text for today. We're going to jump in, and we're going to read the last two verses, verses 6 and 7, and pretend that you're an Old Testament Jew reading the, reading the Word, looking for what God is going to be sending. All through the Old Testament, there's these little pictures of what Messiah would be like, what he would do, uh, what would happen to him, how he would die, why he would die, and they would try to piece these together. But Isaiah 9, 6 starts out, For to us a child is born. So Mary's going to have a child. To us a son is given. That's a reference to the father giving his son, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So if you were uh, living 700 years before Jesus came and you read that, you would expect what? You would expect a child to be born, he would grow up and be king, and he would sit on David's throne forever. He wouldn't die so that means it wasn't just a man. There's something special about this person that would allow him to reign forever. They really expected the Messiah to be the Son of God. So my point here is this. Jesus is promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah is promised. The nation of Israel was clearly expecting a Messiah, waiting for a Messiah. Jesus fulfills the prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah. I want to share... John 1.45, so this is the disciples talking to each other, or New Testament believers. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So the New Testament believers, during Jesus' ministry, understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one. And Jesus affirmed this all through his ministry. After he died and was resurrected, and he was explaining to the disciples why he had to die, he said this. It's re recorded in Luke 24. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I think it's interesting. He had explained this to them before. But he had to open their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. There's a spiritual component to understanding the Bible. So if you ever shared the gospel with somebody or, or tried to tell them something about the Bible and they just couldn't understand it, they couldn't get it, it's because the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their mind to it. So there's a spiritual component to understanding scripture. I think it's interesting that Jesus said everything must be fulfilled. Now when I think about Jesus coming... Uh, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? To fulfill it. And so I always think about, okay, Jesus came, he lived the perfect life. He met the bar, he never sinned. He did everything as he was supposed to so that he would be the perfect sacrifice. And he did that, but he also fulfilled the law in another way. He fulfilled all of the prophecy in the law, all of the things written about them. He did them, everything that he was called to fulfill in his first coming, he did that. So he really fulfills the Old Testament in every sense of the word as our Messiah. Now, what would that promise have meant to Israel? They were promised this Messiah. What would that mean to them? Well, that would mean that they were special. God didn't promise the Messiah to any other nation, just the nation Israel. Of course, over time, this turned into pride, right? And they, they thought they were, were special and God promised them a Messiah because they were special and it became a source of pride. But it gave them hope. It gave them a forward-looking faith, hope for the future, that despite their circumstances, everything would be good in the end. And as New Testament believers, we have the promises of God. We have the same thing. God has made, God has made promises to us not because we're special. We're special because he's given us his promises. We don't want to become a, that to become a source of pride. But we want to have a forward-looking faith 
that knows in spite of what our circumstances might be today or in 2020, in the end, God reigns, we're with them, we have those promises, we have a forward-looking faith. Now, that reminds me of Jeremiah 29.11, a very popular verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope in a future, not to harm you. That's Mike's paraphrase of it. Uh, they had that promise. They had a forward-looking faith just like we do. And a few verses later, Jeremiah 29.14, he tells the people, hey, God's going to bring you back into the land. When he wrote that, they were in Babylon, in captivity, he said, God's going to bring you back into the land. He's not done with you yet. He's working out his plan. So the fact that this Messiah was promised gave the people a forward-looking faith. It gave them hope for the future. Now I want to share with you my first ever sermon video clip. This is a recreation of a Pictionary game that I was in about 20 years ago. See if you can see what I am drawing. Anybody have any guesses? Shot it on the mountain? That's a good guess. When this was drawn for me by the senior pastor of Lakeview Church who was on my Pictionary team, or I was on his team, I didn't have a clue. He was drawing prophecy. Now, I apologize for the sound in the video. First service, that clip played without any sound. This time the sound was up pretty good. It reminds me of a radio I bought on Craigslist once, the ad said, radio $1, volume stuck on full. <laughs> uh, of course, I couldn't turn that down, and so I ended up with an all-or-nothing radio. But anyway, that is prophecy. He explained to me after the fact that that's a prophet. He's speaking, and, he, and he's seeing, he's looking, he's seeing two mountains. So prophecy is awful, often explained as a prophet gets a a vision or, or words come to him and he sees it like a couple of mountains. So he just sees mountains. What he doesn't realize is one mountain is a lot closer than the other mountain. He can't tell that just by looking at them. And he can't tell that part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled soon and part of it is going to have to wait a long time. We see that in Isaiah 9-6 when it says, uh, a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. Well, Jesus was given as a son. The government hasn't been on his shoulders yet. So the son was given. The government hasn't been on his shoulders yet. It look, it's in the same sentences. It looks like it should happen at the same time, but they're separated. That can also play out when we talk about prophecy and horizons. I mentioned Jeremiah 29, 14, where the people were going to be brought back to the land of Israel. That prophecy can have multiple fulfillments, kind of a near and far. So in 500 
something B.C., God can bring them back into the land. And he can also bring them back into the land in 1948. And again, at the end of the age, it has multiple fulfillments, something that makes understanding prophecy not as cut and dried as you think it might be. And this affected what the Israelites were looking for in a Messiah. They weren't really looking for somebody to come and die. They were coming, looking for somebody to come and reign. And when Jesus didn't do that, they thought that he wasn't the Messiah. They wanted to be saved from Rome. They didn't think they needed a saving from their own sin. They considered themselves children of Abraham. So, I've been waiting for 20 years to play Pictionary and have that word come up again, but I don't think it's ever going to. But I did get a sermon illustration out of it, so it wasn't all for naught. Jesus was patterned in the Old Testament as well as being promised. So he's promised, he's also patterned. I want to talk about different ways that Jesus is patterned in the Old Testament. The first way is through what we call types of Christ. Those are people in the Old Testament whose lives or ministries foreshadowed what Jesus would do. And they had a lot in common. There were a lot of similarities. And there are a lot of these in the Old Testament. One of the more well-known ones is Joseph. So I have a list here of similarities between Joseph and Christ and things they had in common. And there's more than this, and there's, there's really good ones that aren't on that list. But he's a type of Christ. He foreshadows what Christ would do. So when we look at the Bible, we can see it's one continuous story all woven together. And I've picked Moses as another type of Christ. We talked about how God was going to send us another prophet like Moses. Here's a list. I, I boiled it down to ten things where Moses and Jesus were similar. Both were shepherds. Both were sent after 400 years of silence from God. Both fasted for 40 days and nights. Both were born at a time that evil kings had pronounced death to Jewish baby boys. Both did miracles to testify to their authority. Both instituted a covenant of blood that saved. Moses at Passover and Jesus at the cross. Both were given God's public stamp of approval with an audible voice from heaven that was heard by a crowd. Both gave up great riches to lead a humble life. Moses left Pharaoh's palace. Jesus left heaven to humbly serve. Both were willing to sacrifice their own lives for the people they were leading. And number 10, both miraculously provided people with bread to eat. Moses bread from heaven, and Jesus fed the multitudes. So types of Christ are a way that Jesus is patterned in the Old Testament and in a sense predicted. He's foreshadowed. Another way that that's done is just through symbols. When I think about symbols of Jesus in the Old Testament, the first one that comes to my mind is the rock in the wilderness. So the, the nation Israel had been without water for three days. They needed water. Moses went and struck a rock, and out of the, water, out of the rock came water, and the Israelites lived. Of course, that rock is a picture of Jesus. Paul tells us that in the New Testament. And in John chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said, if you knew who I was, if you knew I was the Messiah, you would ask me for living water and you would never thirst again. So another way that the, the Bible is all tied together through symbols of Jesus in the Old Testament. There are just a lot of symbols. You know, the Passover lamb, uh, the scapegoat, 
There's just little nuggets that God puts in the Old Testament. Talked about Joseph being a type of Christ. He was tempted by Pharaoh's wife, right? He passed that test, just like Jesus later would pass his temptation test. He was falsely accused, just like Jesus would be falsely accused. He was thrown in prison. He was in prison with who? The cupbearer and the baker. So there we have bread and wine symbolized. What did Joseph tell the two of them when they got out of prison? He told them, remember me, right? Bread and wine, remember me. There we have just a little picture of communion. So as you read the Bible, as we meditate on it and read these stories, we can see how everything's connected and it's woven together, that God knows the end from the beginning, and we can take confidence in his word because of that. So we have types of Christ, we have symbols, and we also have themes that run through the Bible that help unite it and help us to understand it. I'll just talk, touch on a few example themes. One is light and dark. So in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So after this extended period of darkness, Jesus shows up on the scene. A light has dawned. He's the Messiah. Light is a metaphor for Jesus. And again, in, in John eight twelve, in one of the great I Am statements, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we have this darkness and light theme running throughout the Bible. Another theme we have is that of slavery or captivity or bondage versus freedom. So the nation Israel, they were captive in Egypt. Moses, the type of Christ, was their deliverer. He brought them out to the promised land. As New Testament believers, we were slaves to sin, now we're free in Christ, right? We're free to not sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. So that's a, a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And I want to share this passage with you. After uh, Jesus was resurrected, uh, not after he was resurrected, I don't have my glasses on. I usually preach with glasses, but I'm doing it without glasses so I can't see quite as well as I normally do. After Jesus was tempted, when he began his public ministry, he went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he went to the synagogue there. And we have this from Luke chapter 4. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So Jesus is in the temple at the beginning of his public ministry. He's reading from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There are a lot of scenes in the Bible that I would like to have been there to witness. This is one of them. I just think it would be neat to see Jesus read from Isaiah. I've come to set the captive free. He sits down, probably in the teacher's seat. People are going to wait for him to teach. And he says, today, this scripture that was written 700 years ago is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, if I had been there, I wouldn't have understood that any more than anybody else who was there, but I think it would have been neat to see. And we have this theme of the captive being set free by Jesus. I think that's, that's wonderful. It brings ideas of a redeemer. Remember, a redeemer is somebody who bought back a slave. To be redeemed was to have the slave price paid and your freedom bought. Jesus did that for us at the cross. He bought our freedom with his blood. And I think it's interesting to note where Jesus stopped reading. He finishes with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he sits down and says, this is, this is fulfilled today. The next phrase would have been, and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that because he wasn't there to fulfill that at that time. He came to set the captive free. He's going to declare the vengeance of God that day later when he comes back again in glory, in judgment, and in wrath. So he stopped at the right place and says, this is fulfilled today. The rest is going to have to be fulfilled later. And of course, he set the captive free. After that, later, he set me free when I came to faith. If you've come to faith, he set you free. And obviously, that will be fulfilled in a greater way when Jesus comes back again and eventually all of Israel is saved. So we have these types of Christ, these symbols, and these themes. The last theme that I want to talk about is one that I learned about just like a year ago. It's this idea of trees or wood and testing that runs throughout the Bible. So in Hebrew, there's one word for tree and wood. They don't have two different words. We can think of it as the compound word tree wood. It means both. So you could say, I'm going to go out in the yard and plant a tree wood or throw another tree wood on the fire. It was the same word. So when I think about trees or wood and testing in the Bible, often on high places, you know, what comes to mind? What comes to your mind? Well, right away I think about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? There was a tree there. That was a test. They obviously failed that test. Uh, my mind goes to Noah. He was told to build a boat out of wood. That was a test. Now, that boat might not have been built on a high spot, I don't know, but it probably seemed pretty high to the people compared to where the water was. It probably didn't make a lot of sense, right? But he passed that test. Noah was a type of Christ. Through Noah, mankind was saved, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And again, uh, the baby Moses, remember he was put in a basket covered with pitch just like the ark set in the water? He was saved through that. Another way that the Bible's tied together. Uh, another test with wood in, in high places in the Bible is Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, right? Go up on Mount Moriah. Isaac carried the wood on his back and they get up there. He's going to sacrifice Isaac and God stops and says, don't do that, I'll provide and he provided immediately, and of course he provided later in the New Testament, right? So what test, obviously, do we think of in the New Testament about trees? We think about the cross, right? The Old Testament tells us, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The book of Acts repeatedly calls the cross a tree. So that's a testing that Jesus passed in the Bible. So are these themes that run through the Bible that help us to understand it. As we meditate on it, they bring other pictures to mind that are similar but not identical. It helps us to understand the Bible and it helps us to trust it.
So I want you to know that Jesus is promised in the Old Testament. He's patterned over and over again in the Old Testament, but he is also present in the Old Testament. I want to share a couple of instances of that. We're going to go back to Genesis 22. I talked about Abraham being called to sacrifice the child of the promise, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. After God stops them, we have this recorded in Genesis 22. It says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. So this is interesting because it starts out the angel of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, we understand that to be the pre-incarnate Christ. It's not any angel. It's the angel of the Lord. And in this case, it starts out the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, but in the same sentence, this angel says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Well, angels don't swear by themselves, right? This is, this is Jesus, the angel of the Lord, declaring, because he is Lord, declaring that because Abraham has not withheld his son, he says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashores. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I think this is interesting. So we have Abraham tested on Mount Moriah, Jesus comes and says, no, I'll provide. So he provides immediately in that context, and he says, because of your faithfulness, through your offspring, I'm going to bless everybody. Well, who's Abraham's offspring? It's really Jesus, right? So Jesus is talking to Abraham, through your offspring, which is going to be Jesus, everyone's going to be blessed. So that's a case where Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. And one of my points here is this. The second person in the Trinity, Jesus, has always been the mediator between God and men. 1 Peter 5 says there's one mediator. It's always been Jesus, even in the Old Testament. That's not a role that he took on when he was born in Bethlehem. It's a role that he's always had, our mediator and our high priest. One other situation in the Old Testament where we can see what we think is Jesus at work is in Exodus chapter 3. Moses had an encounter with the burning bush. So Moses is in the wilderness. He sees a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. So there's something supernatural going on. He goes over to check it out, and we have this recorded in Exodus 3 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So we always hear about God meeting Moses at the burning bush, but it says, they're the angel of the Lord, and they have an exchange. And then in verse 14, we have this. God said to Moses, now this is the, this is the angel of the Lord that appeared in the flames. It says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So the angel of the Lord met Moses, gave him his name. And of course, our minds go to the New Testament when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham came long before Moses. So Jesus is saying, even before Abraham was, I am. He used God's name. The Jews clearly understood that he's claiming to be preexistent, claiming to be God, 
one of the reasons that they wanted to stone him. But Jesus was present in the Old Testament. The Jesus and the Father are so united. I want to share this verse with you from John 14, 8 and 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus says, don't ask to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how closely they're united. That to see Jesus in human flesh is to see the Father. So what does this mean for us today? That Jesus was clearly promised in the Old Testament. He was patterned in the Old Testament over and over again. And he was even present in the Old Testament as our mediator. What does this mean for us today? Well, I think it means we can really trust the Bible. We can trust God's promises. We can know that God has a plan for us. If you're a seeker that hasn't come to faith yet, you can look at the Bible and say, this makes sense. This isn't just a book. Somebody knew what was going to happen hundreds of years before it happened. Somebody's working this all out. It's not by chance. You can come to faith in God. It's an intellectual act, and it's an act of the heart. Salvation will always be by faith, but it's not blind faith. It's faith that makes sense based on Scripture, based on the evidence, based on what we know has happened. What does it mean for those of us who are believers and are doing our best to walk with God? Same thing. It means we can trust the Bible. It means we can build our life on it. We can trust God. So our faith is built on what God has already done in the Bible. He died for our sins, paid the penalty, and what he's done in our life. He brought us to faith. He made us to be able to understand the gospel. He saved us. God's done that. What has he promised to do? He's promised to always be with us, never leave us, use everything for good, come back for us. He's preparing a home for us. We're going to reign forever with him in heaven. He's promised that. That's what we build our faith on, what God has done and what he's going to do. He, we don't build our faith on what our circumstances are today or in 2020. We build them on God's past promises that he's completed and his promises for the future. When Josh sent his devotional out Friday, he said, we thank God because he's good. We don't thank him because of our circumstances. We thank him because of his nature and character. And we build our faith on the nature and character of God. I'd like the worship team to come up because I'm almost done. So what else this means for us is, as the world says, evolution is proven science or all religions are a farce. It doesn't matter what you believe. Or Christians aren't that bright. When the, that's what the world is saying, we as believers who have a firm understanding of God's word and faith in God, we can stand firmly on that and we can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he'll stand upon the earth. We can be assured of that. That's our future those are the promises we have from God, and we can count on those 100%. Christmas is a celebration of Jesus and a promise-keeping God. That's why we celebrate, because God kept his promise just like he's kept all of his promises, and we can build our faith as we serve a God who keeps his promises. I want to close in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prophecies in the Old Testament. We thank you that Jesus fulfilled them and will continue to fulfill them. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God and a, we, a God that we can build our lives on, a God that gives us hope for the future and peace for today. We thank you so much. Amen.